Hey everyone, welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing the Tulip series. We are completing our historical points of interest episode, which, um, two disclaimers. One, I'm not sure how long this episode will be. Two, you may hear some rain in the background. I have a metal roof. You will likely hear some rain. I can't. I, I have tried to plan around the rain. It just doesn't work. It's raining all week. So that is the, the perk of my setup. Um, natural birds whistling. Sometimes you hear my wind chimes, um, cats jumping around and things like that. So let's go ahead and get into it. Today we are talking about uh, the Reformation era part two. Uh, we talked very briefly about Erasmus and uh, Luther in the last episode. Again, since they're not our focus, we didn't spend too much time there. So we're going to spend more time today talking about Calvin and Arminius, especially because the Arminius subject is really where people get particularly interesting um, from my observation. So let's talk about Calvin and Arminius, uh, which this heading is a little bit um, misleading because we're actually talking about the post-John Calvin era more than anything. And the reason why is because it's in the post-John Calvin, that is after John Calvin, when we find more developments within Calvinism due to his successor and son-in-law, Theodore Beza. Um, there's a lot of debates and a lot of discussions and scholarship about um, how much Calvin finds agreement with Dort. I'm not going to bother going into any of that in particular right here, right now. Um, but that's a whole different topic. Really what you find is that Calvinism as we know it today can most closely be linked to Theodore Beza and the Synod of Dort, which we'll explain what that is here in a second. So Beza, again, the son-in-law and successor of John Calvin, would head the academy in Geneva, Switzerland, until he would pass away in 1605. And Peterson Williams, again, and why I'm not an Arminian, says, quote, most of the participants in the Arminian controversy, including Jacob Arminius, would be trained at Geneva under Beza's tutelage. They continue, quote, where the first generation of reformers equated theology with biblical exposition, the successor of Luther and Calvin moved towards the development of theological systems. They sought to organize, fill out, and defend the thought of the reformers. And, as was the case more often than not among the systematizers, Beza employed medieval scholasticism. The revival of scholasticism introduced into reformed theology a greater emphasis upon philosophical and metaphysical concerns than Calvin entertained. And again, that's from Why I'm Not an Arminian, page 39 by Peterson and Williams. We're not really going to go into scholasticism um, in itself. Instead, we're going to look at like the philosophical results um, that occur within Calvinistic discussions, right? So it is at this point where we are introduced into two key terms, supralapsarianism and infralapsarianism. And these terms are two of the three views within early Calvinism that would be held with Beza holding to the former called supralapsarianism. We're going to explain that. These views, these, these terms, explain the logical order of God's divine decrees. And this, um, we say logical order because it's not temporal, right? It's not in time. It's just a logical outworking of God's decrees when it comes to how God is going to operate. So superlapsarianism, that is the view that Theodore Beza held, 
place God's decrees in the following order. And if you don't know what I mean by that, you'll understand a little bit um, as we go through these points. So first, in superlapsarianism, God elects some to salvation and reprobation of others to damnation. Secondly, God decrees to create the universe. Third, God decrees the fall into sin. He plans the fall. Fourth, God decrees to provide a savior for the elect via Christ. So in this view, God's election and reprobation, that is deciding um, who will be saved and who will be damned, comes before the creation of the world. And so creation actually ends up being for the sake of salvation, and the fall serves as God's elective purposes. What does that mean? That means that God decided to save some and damn some, and creation was to fulfill that first decree. Another view, however, which would be reflected in the Reformed Confessions, is infralapsarianism. This view held that God's elective decree is logically after man's fall. So the order of decrees within this view are as follows. One, God's decree to create the world. Two, the decree to allow man to fall into sin through his own self-determination. He permits the fall. Three, God's decree to elect some to salvation and leave others, that is the non-elect, to their just fate and condemnation. And four, God decrees to provide a savior for the elect via Christ. Notice how the order shifts here. The creation comes first, the fall comes second, and that fall is not a plan to satisfy the first decree, but rather it is a permission of the fall to occur with God's decree to election in third place with the passive condemnation of the reprobate. And again, passive being he leaves others in their state and to their just condemnation. So this view disagreed with superlapsarianism and that within the superlapsarian scheme, man is essentially created for the sake of his election or reprobation. Put another way, God created in order to save and condemn and actively predestines men to hell and causes the fall. That's, that's where infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism differ. Um, contrary to superlapsarianism, Infralapsarianism would make election and passive reprobation for the sake of dealing with men who have fallen at him. What do I mean? Election is for the sake of dealing with those who have fallen. So those are the two primary views, but there's one more view to consider, which I can never pronounce correctly. Amiraldism, which is mostly known as four-point Calvinism. That is a Calvinism that um, denies limited atonement. And so the order of decrees in this view is one, God's decree to create the world, two, the decree to allow man to fall into sin through his own self-determination, so he permits the fall, the same way as infralapsarianism, three, God decrees to provide a savior sufficient for all via Christ, and then four, God's decree to elect some to salvation and leave others, that is the non-elect, to their fate and condemnation. So, um, Really, the difference here is between three and four in infralapsarianism. They're flipped. Um, in four-point Calvinism, the decree to provide Christ as the Savior comes first, and then election. While in the other view, infralapsarianism, election comes first, and then the provision of Christ. If you need this on paper, we got you covered. There are graphics for these episodes that will be um, on the website with the landing page of this episode, and then I'll probably put them up on 
social media. So um, these views in terms of how helpful they are now are a little bit debated. Um, and so that's, that's kind of worth stating out the gate, but they're important here because Jacob Arminius would start to form his view based on his um, position against first superlapsarianism and then infralapsarianism. So Jacob Arminius was a student of Theodore Beza, and he would come to disagree with various points of theology, right, in his day. And despite these disagreements, Arminius would still confess the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, the two forms of unity of the Reformed churches, before it would become the three forms of unity that would include the Canons of Dort. So nowadays, if you hear about the three forms of unity, it is the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort teach Calvinism. But before that document was drafted up, it was the two forms of unity in Reformed churches, the Belgic and the Heidelberg. Jacob Arminius held to these. And so whenever you hear Reformed Arminians, they are people that would gladly affirm the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, arguing that it allows for the classical Arminian position. And of course, Matthew Pinson, um, who's one of the authors of the books I'm referring to in all this, he actually has a couple of interviews on YouTube and stuff like that where he explains this. But it's worth stating here that the, the details over the nature and character of Arminius and the remonstrance, the remonstrance are the followers of Jacob Arminius, and the history around the debates becomes so convoluted. Um, I have personally found the more critical presentation of the remonstrance to be found wanting. I, I don't find it as convincing as the, the view that gives a more, I would say, balanced view of the history. That all said, for a treatment on the discussion, from what I think is a balanced perspective by Calvinists, you can look at Robert Peterson and Michael Williams, why I'm not an Arminian. Uh, they, they do very well at giving the Arminians their, their proper due in terms of representation. For the perspective from the Arminian position, one can consult, again, Matthew Pinson's 40 questions about Arminianism. Now, if you want a critical presentation of the remonstrance, you can look at Robert Godfrey's Saving the Reformation, and that book is an exposition of the canons of Dort, and you will find his critical examination in his main text in his history, but then he also has an appendix dealing with the scholarship surrounding Arminius. So you can get the, the gist of what's going on with all that. Um, but I'm going to be relying on Peterson and Williams um, because, again, I find their presentation to be the most balanced. And just quoting them at length, quote, In 1587, Arminius took a pastorate in the Reformed Church. While he was an effective and beloved pastor throughout the 1590s, his preaching and teachings incurred the increasing suspicion of the strict Calvinists in and around Amsterdam, who judged him as placing too much emphasis on human freedom in the process of belief and repentance. Between 1591 and 1596, Arminius presented his developing views on free will and predestination in a series of sermons on Romans 7 and 9. Although his preaching earned him the displeasure of a number of other pastors, Arminius remained on good terms with his own congregation throughout his Amsterdam pastorate. End quote. So Arminius would go on to teach theology at the University of Leiden in 1603, but eventually controversy would arise due to tensions with a figure known as Gamarus, who was a student of Beza and who was a strict superlapsarianism. He would go on to accuse Jacob Arminius of theological error 
And this tension would ripple throughout the Reformed churches, leading to various pastors and lay people picking sides, as they often do. Um, Gamarus accused, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, so apologize for that, but he accused Arminius of deviating from the confessional standards of the Reformed churches. That is, again, the Belgic Confession and Heidelberg Catechism. But Arminius defended himself against the charge in the document known as the Declaration of Sentiments, which was penned in 1608. So Arminius argued that the confessions were not specific enough for the accusations levied at him. And within his declaration, he argued against superlapsarianism and laid out his objections to it. But he did not only reject superlapsarianism, but also infralapsarianism and unconditional election. So we're going to talk about unconditional election as we get to that section in our series. Um, but as a simple definition, it simply taught that God elected some to salvation simply out of his will and without consideration of what man may do in his life. We'll Again, we'll flesh that out later on. I'm not going to hash it out here. Um, and you may better understand it here by saying that Arminius would present conditional election. That is, man's election by God is based on God's knowledge of that man's positive response to God's grace in having faith. Okay? So, conditional election versus unconditional election. Arminius presented conditional election. God elects on the basis of whether or not man will have faith. Unconditional election. God elects on the basis of his own will not whether or not he will have faith in the future or um, a response to God's grace in the future. Jacob Arminius then would say that um, election and reprobation are based off of human choices, and so this election is conditional. Yet for Arminius, God predestines all who will believe in Christ to be saved and all who reject the gospel to be damned. So, to understand how that works, these are actually general classes for Arminius rather than specific historical persons. In fact, one might even say that this is pretty close to what we would call corporate election. So you have these two classes, in Christ and outside of Christ, and what class you end up in based off of your faith and response to God's grace will determine where you are predestined. If you are in Christ, you are predestined to glorification and um, being conformed to Christ's images, right? If you're outside of Christ, then you are predestined to condemnation. That's a lot. This is all a lot. And this will be fleshed out later. This is just to kind of get us oriented on, on what's happening here. And then you can come back and listen to these after we flesh those out later on. I know the organization could be kind of tricky in that way. Um, so Arminius consistently insisted that he was not Pelagian, but instead affirmed that salvation's initiation is by God's grace alone through faith alone. For Arminius, the will is freed via prevenient grace, and the elect are saved through the exercise of faith, which is a gift from God. Like Lutherans, Arminius would state that the enabling that God gives to the sinner may be resisted by the will of the sinner. It's resistible grace. You can resist it. For Arminius, grace is persuasive in nature, and it is not something that causes something to happen. It's not coercion and belief, as he would say. For Arminius, the call of the gospel is not you will, but rather you should. Peterson and Williams states, quote, The real center of the remonstrance and the linchpin of the Arminian approach to salvation is found in this phrase, quote, This prevenient or assisting an awakening, consequent and cooperating grace, end quote. The phrase places the Arminian articles firmly in the synergistic tradition of the semi-Augustinians. 
Salvation is a matter of both God and the sinner doing their part. God begins by giving the sinner sufficient and repairing grace that he or she is enabled to freely accept or reject the gospel. Human beings who were formerly unable to contribute the slightest to their own redemption, who were depraved by and enslaved to sin, are sufficiently restored by God's gift of prevenient grace so that they are able to choose for or against the work of Christ, end quote. So to tie it back into our discussion on semi-Pelagianism, this is not semi-Pelagianism. The will is completely bound by sin and it needs a grace to come before before man can do anything. In fact, whenever we start talking about total depravity and we start quoting uh, Jacob Arminius, a lot of people may be shocked by some of the things that he said. Um, so anyway, back to the historical narrative. After some controversy, those who agreed with Arminius wanted to call a national synod, that is a conference or a council, to discuss their points of disagreement with the Reformed churches. Arminius actually died from an illness and was unable to see um, the result of those calls to a synod. But in 1610, those who found agreement with Arminius would issue a document to the states general known as a remonstrance, and that's where they would get their name from. This document would be known as the Remonstrance Articles of 1610, and it would contain the five points of Arminianism. Fun fact there, the five points of Arminianism came first. They are as follows. 1. Conditional election. 2. Universal atonement. 3. Total depravity and prevenient grace. 4. Resistible grace. And 5. Conditional perseverance. So eventually the states general would call a synod, and that would be known as the Synod of Dort. And the proceedings of the Synod of Dort and how all that worked out is again debated around the character and nature of the remonstrance, which again, you can go back to those sources I talked about um, regarding the historical narrative. Again, I'm going with what I find is the balanced view, and that is um, the Synod of Dort treated the remonstrance as defendants, charged them with heresy, and required them to appear before the Synod and respond to the charges. The remonstrance rejected this method of discussion and withdrew from the proceedings in which the synod would continue without them. In the synod, the canons of Dort would be formed, and these canons are those documents written to respond to the Remonstrance Articles of 1610. The canons of Dort would be a response to each of the five points of Arminianism, and the Arminians would be considered guilty of heresy with over 200 Arminian pastors being deposed from their posts and congregations and excommunicated. So it is in the Canons of Dort where Tulip comes from. But again, another fun fact, the Canons of Dort don't actually follow the order of Tulip. But regardless, Tulip in its most well-known order is T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. Tulip. So that's it. That's where we're stopping our historical discussion. That's going to that's gonna frame us. There, there's a lot that happened after there's a lot of history as you go um, from the detractors from Arminius and they start becoming uh, more Pelagian, right? You, know, you can read that from Arminian scholars. And then there's more discussions that happen within Reformed theology. Um, but we're stopping there. That's going to be the historical framework. We're, we, we don't find it necessary because we're focusing more on the theological points and discussing it. This was just enough to get us framed for the discussion and look at it from that point of view. So we're going to save those further examinations um, for future discussions, but I hope that this brief history gives you a little bit of idea, helps clear up some misconceptions and sorts 
um, out the information in a way that can help you with future discussions. And then after we talk about those concepts, maybe you can come back and be like, oh, that's what he was talking about when he said those words that he barely can pronounce correctly. So this all said, uh, we finished remarkably early. This is a short episode. This will be probably the last short episode. So I... I know some of you guys get disappointed with short episodes. Some of you guys get disappointed with long episodes. This is going to make someone happy, right? Let's just briefly then spend a couple minutes just looking over some of the key terms that we talked about in the previous episodes. First one, soteriology. That's what we're talking about mostly. The category of theology dealing with salvation or doctrines related to salvation. Okay? Soteriology. And then we have traditional Pelagianism. That man is not born corrupt and can entirely merit his own salvation. And then three, original sin, which will be our next episode um, in more depth. But typically the concept that man is born with inherent corruption because of Adam's sin in the garden. Typically, original sin includes the idea of original guilt. That is the idea that Adam has passed on not only corruption to his children, but also the guilt of his sin too. Next, prevenient grace or preceding grace is a grace that comes before and repairs the will and frees the man from the bondage of sin, thus allowing the man to respond to the gospel. Monergism, meaning that regeneration or conversion is wholly dependent upon God's grace without the cooperation of man. Synergism, man cooperates with God in order to be converted. Particular predestination, that is, that God chooses, that is, elects, some to be saved. Double predestination, that God elects both some to be saved actively and actively elects others to judgment. Semi-Pelagianism is the idea that man is born corrupt, but is still born with the capacity to will himself towards God and his grace apart from God's enabling grace and cooperates with it for salvation. Superlapsarianism, a view within Calvinism that states that God's decree to elect some to salvation and damnation precedes the fall of Adam and creation. Infralapsarianism, a view within Calvinism that stated that God's decree to elect some to salvation and pass over everyone else followed the fall. Unconditional election, the position of Calvinism that stated that God elects some to salvation simply by his own counsel and will without consideration of what a man may do in his own life. Conditional election, the position posited by Arminius that God elects men to salvation based on their foreseen faith and position in Christ. The five points of Arminianism. One, conditional election. Two, universal atonement. Three, total depravity and prevenient grace. Four, resistible grace. And five, conditional perseverance. And lastly, the five points of Calvinism, one, total depravity, two, unconditional election, three, limited atonement, four, irresistible grace, and five, perseverance of the saints, or as some people like to say, preservation of the saints, which, by the way, there will be a graphic that also presents the logical order of God's decrees from the Arminian perspective, because they did also have that. It wasn't just Calvinists who were saying, oh, infralapsarianism, superlapsarianism, right? Um, this was a normal thing um, in that discussion for Arminius as well. So that's going to wrap up our historical points of interest. I hope that you have found some benefit from this, and I hope you find benefit from the upcoming episodes. If you enjoy Christ as a Cure, if you have been a longtime listener, prayerfully consider leaving a review on iTunes for us, a rating and a review. 
and um, also consider becoming a part of the support team at patreon.com forward slash crisis cure. Until next time, which will be the beginning of Total Depravity, we're going to focus on Original Sin. God bless you all and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.